Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated and good morning. It's good to be in worship with you today. And I want to start with a little bit of a survey uh, by a show of hands. Uh, here's the thing. I, I actually realized this about 20 years ago that I went to UGA and received a Bachelor of Arts uh, in English from the University of Georgia. I'm curious, does anyone else here have a Bachelor of Arts in English? Okay. Anyone taking English class? Grad student. Any English professors? <laughs> yes. Okay. We had at least three at the last service. Um, here's the thing. You might have already realized this. Anglican churches are notorious for being stuffed full of wonderfully bookish English folks. Um, it's just an occupational hazard we have. And uh, for us, our team, that means something very specific. It means that each week when we produce this bulletin, we are walking on a knife's edge because there are these red pins in the brains of our English professor friends uh, going around, and they will just notice a typo, a misspelled word, um, something said incorrectly. I actually had a bit of grammar that I used in the first service corrected during the coffee fellowship. <laughs> and you know how distracting this can be. We were at a group with our, uh, gathered with all of our clergy in our diocese this week for synod, and uh, we had these beautiful bulletins. They're, they're well printed. They look great, but no one had proofed them. Um, and so like for one thing, like my name was spelled wrong. Um, come on. And then the other thing is we kept worshiping Al instead of all, <laughs> which is just never good. Lift high the cross till Al. No, that doesn't work. You can't sing that way. Um, and I bring that up only because there are some uh, humorous bits of grammar, believe it or not, as we come to our reading this morning, Ephesians 1. Because apparently the Apostle Paul did not have any English professors or students in his mix. Uh, because Ephesians chapter 1, the entire chapter is two sentences in Greek. The section we're going to look at today, verses 15 uh, through 23, eight verses, one sentence. I mentioned that calling them run-on sentences doesn't even come close to describing these just eruptions of joy from St. Paul and one of our English professors between services, mind you, said it's only a run-on sentence if it's not properly punctuated. <laughs> Who knows if the Apostle Paul properly punctuated this, but uh, here we go. Um, we're going to look at this long sentence today, um, and I will tell you, I geeked out during my preparation for this sermon. Uh, generally, it's poor form to show your work when you're preaching. Um, you want to leave some of the, the study in the study uh, versus boring people with it, but I've got to just tell you, I found online <laughs> a sentence diagram of this eight-verse sentence. They had diagrammed the Greek, and it was actually so helpful because it's an eight-verse sentence. And so to see this sentence diagram where they circled, this is the main verb, was actually really helpful and really useful. Because sometimes we go into these dense parts of the Apostle Paul's letters, and there's so much going on. There's so many details. There's so many clauses and commas that we can miss the main point. 
Or, or we can just chase rabbit trails or interesting curiosity, uh, theological curiosities all over the place. But uh, this told me, hey, here's the one thing Paul is trying to communicate in this verse. So that's what I want to do today. I want to look at the one request Paul has for this church in Ephesus, the prayer request he makes of God for them. And it's a prayer request that's for us as well. Um, and then I want to talk about just how that fits in to a feast day like All Saints, as we look at All Saints on uh, the Sunday after All Saints, which was November 1st. Sound good? All right. St. Paul's big prayer request. Amidst everything going on in this chapter, there's a ton, like I said, two sentences, one chapter, eight verses, one sentence. Here's the central idea. There's a prayer request. And then verse 18, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. That's the prayer request Paul has. That you may know the hope to which he has called you. Or more accurately, honestly, that y'all may know the hope to which he has called y'all. It's a hope for the church, not just uh, individuals. Um, we actually this summer went through Colossians under the heading of Christ in y'all, uh, the hope of glory. <laughs> and I mentioned that because for Paul, hope and glory are usually related. And actually Ephesians and Colossians are quite related. So you might recognize some of the uh, language and what's going on here. Um, and you would go, man, Paul, why do you keep writing about the same thing over and over? Well, I think it's because he can't get over it. His life has so been transformed by his encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. He is so enamored with what Jesus has done for us and for our salvation. And he comes back to this thing as a priority and primary thing over and over again. Amidst all of the different issues and different problems different Christians and different churches face, he says, you need to know this. This will help you uh, in your Christian life. You need uh, an epiphany of hope. An epiphany of the glory of the hope to which you have been called. Uh, Paul can't get over it. And, and the other thing he says that's very interesting when it comes to that you may know the hope, what is the hope to which you have been called, is he lets the Ephesians know that they're not going to be able to figure this out or have this epiphany on their own. He says, God actually has to do something in your life. God has to reveal something to you. God has to graciously unveil knowledge and wisdom and understanding of this incredible hope to which we have been called. Um, we often talk in the church about the difference in uh, head knowledge and heart knowledge, right? You probably heard that phrase thrown around. Um, head knowledge, I, some of you guys know I have a high schooler. And he does a great job uh, studying for tests and things in school. And uh, sometimes what he'll do is he'll study for a test. And he'll learn a fact, a tidbit, a way to do something. And he'll take the test. And then uh, he will quickly excuse that fact from his brain to fill it with more facts. Which I completely understand. You've done that. You've taken tests that way, right? If the whole idea is just to demonstrate recall, we can do that. That's head knowledge. Um, and we can pass the test, and that'll go fine, et cetera. Um, we know there's something different when you internalize knowledge, when it becomes part of you, um, when it travels from here 
down to here, when you feel it in your bones and in your chest and in your body. The Apostle Paul says that's the kind of knowledge he wants for them. Not simply that they can recite, here's the credo line about our hope, but that it would actually, they would be tethered to it and it would anchor their lives. And when they go through things that are challenging and terrible and hard, it would be a compass for them. And they would live in light of it. Just before that main part, in verse 18, he's praying that this church, he says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. There it is. It's not mere head knowledge. He wants an epiphany with the eyes of their hearts to be enlightened, to be able to somewhat comprehend the glory of the hope to which they have been called. A little bit later in uh, chapter three of the same book in Ephesians, um, it's very interesting. Paul kind of continues expounding on this prayer, what it would mean for them to actually know the hope to which they've been called and he says this in verse 14, for this reason, this is chapter three, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, again, glory and hope being so related, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and height and length and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I actually take it that that's what it means for the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened, that we would be filled and overflowing with the presence and love of Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit, in our midst right here and right now. That we'd have a clear understanding, a clear hope and understanding of our eternal destiny in the Lord. And on a day like all saints, where we think about those who have died in the Lord, that we would have clear thinking about them. Um, that we would actually have the eyes of our hearts be able to understand, man, how do we navigate the loss of loved ones? How do we navigate grief and trauma and pain? Um, you may know another passage, 1 Thessalonians 4. They've had some members fall asleep uh, to die in the Lord. And Paul writes to them, we don't want you to be uninformed. We don't want you to be ignorant, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. There's a way in which understanding the glory of the hope we have um, can guide us even through grief. Um, and that's not meant to, to be dismissive um, I was thinking about All Saints and All Saints Day, and I realized, man, I did not grow up with All Saints at all. Um, who here did not grow up with All Saints in your background? Okay, most of the room. Um, so I grew up in uh, a Southern Baptist church. Uh, there's a lot that I value and appreciate uh, from that upbringing. But I will say, we did not talk about death. And we did not talk about the dead, and we did not talk about those who had died in the Lord the only time death came up was at the end of a service, we could come forward and pray and then we could actually ignore death because we said we were fine. And if someone we knew actually died and we were sad, then they would say, there, 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 grieve, but not as those without hope. You're making us uncomfortable. And so one of the great gifts when I kind of found the, the, the church, uh, liturgical church and church history and these celebrations and rhythms is to go, oh my gosh, we can actually talk about death. 
Like we can actually bring it into worship. And we can bring it in and think about it and pray about it. And we can actually have our joy in the resurrection of Jesus uh, be mixed with and acknowledge the sadness of those whom we love and see no longer. We can bring that before uh, the Lord. Um, we can actually let grief be a long and, and varied and hopefully healthy ultimately process. We don't rush people through it. We're aware of those in our midst who are struggling, having a hard time. Um, I would say if you, I mean, we've got, I know just in our own congregation, we've uh, had members go to be with the Lord this year. We've had uh, family and friends of folks who are connected with St. Thomas go to be with the Lord. And if you are just feel like you are drowning in that grief, my prayer is that by the Holy Spirit, God would give you an epiphany of this glorious hope, that it would start to serve as a lifeline, as a, as a compass, um, and then reach out. We've got a lot of folks who would meet with you, pray with you, talk with you, and not just in a, they're there, quit making us uncomfortable, <laughs> but to sit with you and sit in the midst of that and take our time slowly to go through that. Um, I love that in our worship, we say, hey, it's okay to come with a mix of emotions. That's maturity in the Christian faith, that we can bring grief and joy in at the same time. The psalmist says, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And part of that beauty includes our joyful lament of those whom we love but see no longer. On a day like this, we remember the saints of God as the saints of God, who are part of the communion of the saints. We remember our loved ones in his presence, what the prayer book calls uh, the faithful departed. And then also, if we're wise, we, we think about our own participation in the communion of the saints and our own future beyond death. Um, there's times in the liturgical year we just say, hey, remember, you're not going to live forever. Have you done business with the Lord? Have you thought about this life you're living and thought about the fact that you're going to die? The church has always called that memento mori. Remember that you will die. And that's part of what we have on a day like All Saints where we go, hey, we will, but when we do, it will be the gateway to everlasting life where we dwell with God forever. Mindful of the life of the world to come. Mindful that there will come a day when God's glory will renew and flood and fill the new heavens and the new earth, and we will dwell with him forever. That's the hope that we have as followers of Jesus. All right, back to Ephesians 1 and just this kind of dense grammar of Paul. He says, uh, I pray that you would have the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And then he kind of says, that equals what are the riches of his glorious inheritance and in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? When? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Um, any hope we have, any hope we have on a day like all saints is because of the resurrection of Jesus the one who died but was raised to life. All of our hope that we have, there's actually a, there's a liturgy that says all, the, all of our hope we set on the risen Christ. It's a Kenyan liturgy in the Anglican church. All our hopes we set on the risen Christ. That's what we do on a day like today. We think about our glorious inheritance that is to come. And Paul loves the word inheritance. Have you noticed that? He talks about inheritance all the time. Um, and I think it's very intentional because the idea of inheritance tells us a few things about our salvation and the hope that we have. 
couple things it tells us. First, an inheritance. Um, I'm guessing some folks here have received an inheritance over the years, right? Um, did you work hard for that? Were those resources in your account? Was it because of your industriousness and hard work and hard living? No. Someone you love loved you. <laughs> and they worked really hard. And they amassed resources and a legacy. And then what did they do? They gave it to you. Freely. Graciously. As long as we've got some law school students. Sometimes attorneys get involved in this. And they ruin my illustration. <laughs> because they put conditions on inheritance. But you get the idea. Someone has done this work that you didn't do. And then you receive this thing that they worked hard for. That you didn't work hard for. But you'd benefit from. For Paul, as he thinks about us and our salvation, he's like, the Lord Jesus has done this work and he's accumulated this great treasure. And you get it. You get it, not because of anything you've done, but because of his great love for you. And just like any inheritance, this only works when someone dies. And that's where it's beautiful because Paul says, you get this glorious inheritance because Jesus has died, but not only that, he's not stayed dead. He's been raised to life everlasting, and you even get that too. Forgiveness of your sins because of his work and his death, life everlasting in his resurrection because he has been raised uh, from the dead. Paul is really clear. This is all due to the death and resurrection of Jesus, and it's not a formula. Chapter 2, verse 4, uh, Paul is describing the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. Paul has these great little turns of phrase, and they stand up and say, notice me. This is the great work that he worked in Christ. Well, what is it? Well, it's Ephesians 2, verse 4, the great love with which he loved us. It's not transactional. It's not a formula. It's rooted in the overflowing love of Christ for you and for me. That's where we get this idea of our hope. When in the creed each week we say we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, it's not just head knowledge. We're saying, Lord, enlighten the eyes of our hearts. To know that we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come because of the great work which you have worked in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because of the great love with which you loved us. And now we're at work in our lives and we trust as you worked in those whom we love but see no longer. That's how we come in and can have hope as we consider those whom are with the Lord. That's the focus. That's the content of the hope to which we've been called. And Paul says, Lord, would you give the Ephesian church, would you give St. Thomas, would you give each person a deep heart knowledge of this? That, that, that it would be a tether for them. That they could be rooted in this. Again, that it would be a compass as they navigate their own life and even as they navigate grief and the aftermath when those whom they love die. Would they, would they know this in a way that surpasses head knowledge but is a blazing vision to take us through this life. That's Paul's hope. Um, one long sentence, eight verses, one main point. And it comes to us as our All Saints Day reading. So I want to talk a little bit about All Saints Day, how it's been celebrated in the church, how it's been miscelebrated in the church, and how we come to it this morning. Again, I wanted to start with Ephesians 1. Because a clear and right understanding of this doctrine 
and the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, it is the first starting point to think about all saints and to not let weird superstitious things crowd into All Saints Day and our uh, celebrations of it. Um, But sadly, if we look at church history, um, we don't see the kind of clarity Paul prayed for. We see the church having trouble with this, having trouble with how do we remember those who have died in the Lord? How do we honor them, worship them, celebrate them? Uh, The church has really struggled with them. So I want to just talk a little bit in just our time remaining about these ways the church has celebrated rightly and then miscelebrated um, these related issues. Um, Because until maybe, I don't know, 500 years ago, most folks in the church, uh, kind of a, a medieval Roman Catholic setting, they were taught that the church exists in three phases. Um, the, you have three phases of the church. You have the church uh, triumphant. Those are those who are with the Lord. Um, you have the church militant. Those are the visible church that we see. And there's a third category, the church expectant. Um, they had a category of those who have died, but somehow they're not fully with the Lord. Um, we would say that's related to doctrines of purgatory and things like that. Um, my hunch is a lot of folks who, who've heard that or been taught that. A couple of folks, yeah. Um, that was, I mean, that's, there's a long-standing tradition of that uh, in the Christian church. Um, and what got unfortunate is that that, what I would say is probably just a misemphasis in terms of misunderstanding, led to all these doctrines and practices that were really harmful for people. Um, we in the Anglican church would not hold to the doctrine of purgatory, and so, uh, and we can actually look back and go, man, this is one of the ways that sadly the church really failed uh, as shepherds with God's people. Because uh, here's how this would kind of work out logically is if you have those threefold categories, those we see, those with the Lord who are really with the Lord because they're awesome, and then those who need some help to get there, well, then the church can invite you to help those in purgatory get there. Um, and imagine the emotional appeal of that. Um, If you said, hey, Tim, I know that you really loved your great-great-grandmother. And I know that she is going to be, uh, she's died. um, And we know she's part of the church expectant. And so if you want, we have this thing in the church where we will sell you an indulgence. And it'll help just kind of purify and cleanse her. And so if you really love your great-great-grandmother, would you please uh, make this donation? You're going to pay your mortgage this month? <laughs> Don't you have faith in the Lord to provide? Go ahead and just put that money over uh, to the church. Just not that pious. Not that pious, <laughs> that's right. Um, and, I, and, and again, this was common practice. This is what in the Reformation, the Reformers um, really are like, hey, we are exploiting people. We're taking advantage of people. Um, and I would say, thankfully, even, those, uh, even the Roman Catholic Church during the Reformation had a counter-Reformation and said, yeah, we've got to clean up some of this. Uh, we, we're missing the boat on some things here. Um, but what, what's really rooted in that is this sharp division between those who have died and are with the Lord and those who have died and need help to get with the Lord. And I would just say, man, I don't see that sharp division in the Scriptures. Uh, liturgically, some folks have talked about All Saints Day, and All Souls Day. If you'll notice in the Book of Common Prayer 2019, there is no All Souls Day because it says that puts too sharp a distinction between the saints who we know that are famous for their holiness and then the everyday saints that are unknown uh, to the world and to history. 
Um, that's what they would do. They would say, all saints, these are the really holy ones that we know are the most famous for being holy. All souls, that's just you and me. That's everybody. So they created this division that's artificial. Um, and so we don't have this idea of all souls day. And I would say there's a, there's a lot that is tragic as a result of the Reformation. Um, the division within Christ's church, that's a, that's a tragedy. Um, and we always want to pray and seek unity where it can be found. But the idea that we actually kind of cleaned up this doctrine, that's a good thing. And cleaned up some of those practices, that's a good thing. Alistair McGrath is a Church of England a church historian. And here's his definition of the church. It says, the church is not a static building, but a dynamic pilgrim people who are constantly moving on in faith and obedience. It includes those who have gone ahead of us and those who will follow. It is a great fellowship of faith spanning the ages and the continents. See, McGrath is not making this sharp distinction between the saints and then just the souls that God saves. Um, and I wonder, like, when you hear the word saint, I say, who is a saint? You're naturally probably going to think of, I don't know, Mother Teresa? St. Paul? A martyr? I don't know. When we hear the word saint, we only think of the most holy people that we know or that history has ever known. But that's, the New Testament gives us a different grid, a different lens. You see, when Paul writes to churches, he calls them saints. When Paul writes to churches uh, that are confused and misled, where sin is notoriously running amok among them, you know what he calls them? Saints. He doesn't call them bad Christians or almost Christians or those needing a little extra time or purgatory. He prays for their maturity. But he says, you are the saints of God. And that's rooted on his image and his understanding of what Jesus has done for us and for our salvation. I mean, even Corinth, God bless them. I mean, if you've read 1 Corinthians and you've seen the immaturity and the issues that they had, Paul calls them saints. He rejoices in God's work uh, among them. And you're going, yeah, but like I know myself. I'm no saint. I mean, maybe I've tried to make progress in holiness. Maybe I've tried to get rid of this or that. But man, there's stuff I just can't shake. And I get tired of striving. And, and if you only knew what I had done or I had struggled with, you wouldn't call me a saint. That's not Paul's understanding. Uh, because in Paul's understanding, whether we are or not saints or holy ones is not actually rooted in our work. It's rooted in the work that Jesus has done for us and for our salvation. Paul would say, you're exactly right. But you actually, <laughs> uh, like this inheritance idea, not because of what you have done or not done, not because of the life you've lived or the holiness that you have or haven't progressed in, but because of the holiness of Jesus. God sees you as a saint. God sees you as a holy one. Romans tells us that even as we strive and struggle with sin, there will come a day, actually when we die, where that propensity to sin is cut off and done away with. Where we're renewed and conformed to the image of Jesus. And it's in light of that, in light of the righteousness of Jesus, that Paul says, you're saints. Like, I know you're a mess, but you're saints. Let's call you to live up into maturity of who God sees you as in Christ. Every Christian is a saint because of our Lord. 
Every Sunday is an All Saints Sunday because we gather as the saints of God uh, to give the honor and worship that is due to our Lord. And so that kind of helps us understand if we know someone who has died, what's going on there? And again, I know this is something like you don't talk about often in church or polite company, but it's important to know and to see. For Paul actually tells us in Philippians 1, Paul writes, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live, that means fruitful labor for me. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Those whom we love, who we see no longer, they go to be with the Lord. Think about when Jesus is on the cross. You've got the thief. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Um, That alone should shake any kind of doctrine of purgatory. (laughs) This dude has no chance to live the Christian life well. (laughs) He is immediately dying in the faith, and the Lord says, you'll be with me in paradise. You will immediately go to be with the Lord. There's not a barrier separating you. And And that's If you have a sharp distinction between all souls and all saints and you have Jesus seated on the throne like a medieval court and you've got this whole buffer zone of the real saints and you either have to pass a message through them and pray through the saints or find a way to get there. Um, That's what's going on. He says, no, 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 you're welcomed in. You you have direct access. Like the, the aisle is clear and you can come in because of the work of our great high priest the Lord Jesus. You are welcomed in. And it's actually, if you want to think about purgatory in any sense, um, the way that that would refine and conform us to the image of Jesus, uh, the best way to think about that is, well, that's the life that we live. Those are the trials and tribulations, um, the struggles that we go through. Those are how God refines and grows and molds and matures us. The sufferings of this present time, not this later valley or the valley we pass through in order to reach this glorious future. So those we love go to be with the Lord. And that's not the full picture. Of course, they're waiting. They're waiting with all of God's creation for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. But they're there safe and secure with God, beginning their eternal uh, worship, Um, which for me is a bittersweet truth filled with joy and peace and hope. Um, if, if some of this seems weird or you don't know where I'm coming from on it, there's a, there's a little book. It's less than 100 pages uh, called For All the Saints by N.T. Wright. Um, those who come here regularly are going to chuckle, of course, that I'm going to be influenced by Bishop Wright. Um, but in that, here's what he says. Here's how we think about uh, the faithful departed. Bishop Wright says, The Christian dead are held firmly within the conscious love of God and the conscious presence of Jesus Christ while they await that day, the day of resurrection. Since both the departed saint and we ourselves are in Christ, then by the Spirit we share with them in the communion of the saints. They are still our brothers and sisters in Christ. When we gather for worship, we gather to take part in the ongoing eternal worship that they offer around the Father's throne. And so today is a day when we do think about those whom we love but we see no longer. We honor them. We remember them. We thank God for them and we grieve, but not as those without hope. And we're also reminded that we will be with their number. We eventually will meet our end and we renew our faith. We renew our trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus. We say, Lord, would you enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may know 
the hope to which we've been called, down deep, that, that it would give us a tether and an anchor of glory. And then with so much going on, it's no wonder, right? Paul wrote this one big eight-verse sentence. <laughs> He's got a lot to say. He's got a lot to describe. And so as much as All Saints is about the faithful departed, I would just say, make sure it's also, first and foremost, about Jesus, King Jesus, the Holy One. We're covered by his righteousness, his holiness. We will ultimately be renewed in his image. And so All Saints is ultimately about the one who makes us saints and how we are called saints, not primarily about them themselves. So yeah, today let's remember the faithful departed, the Christian dead. Let's celebrate the life and faith of those we love who seem no, we see no longer. Give thanks to God for the gift that they were to you and to us and to the world. Remember them. Spend time over lunch telling stories about them and their lives. Um, earlier, you know, we have little kids, grandkids. Let them know the legacy of faith that they are part of. Um, those whom they didn't get to meet, but they can actually meet through you and through your keeping uh, their memory alive. Cherish the love and impact they had on our lives, but even more, give thanks and honor and glory to King Jesus, the one who is truly holy, truly righteous, the one who gives his righteousness to us, King Jesus, the saint maker, the one who makes us all saints. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.